But welcome, Dr. James Beggett, Sports Card Insights here with Rich Klein. We're going to talk about pricing techniques then and now, generated somewhat by Rich uh, from other conversations he's had. And he and I both were very involved with that back in the day. It's a new day now, but it's interesting to see what goes around, comes around sometimes. So thanks, sponsors, Tops Panini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Hugs and Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, ComC.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. So welcome, Rich. Why don't you introduce the topic, and we'll go back and forth a little bit. We were having a hobby news daily chat that I write a monthly column for, and this really came up that yesterday when you and I were really doing pricing, the sales data we got was really even percent proprietary. We didn't have public sales. We were hoping that people sold for what they asked, were asking for in the trade publications like Sports Collector's Digest. But really, sales were not public. Today, with the various auction houses and eBay and with History Points on ComC and all these places, public data for what stuff sells for. And the question is, do you think that back in the day that the mystique that we had really good private information gave the old Beckett price guide a kind of mystique that, hey, how do these guys know what this stuff is really selling for compared to today where you have all this data? And it's maybe more confusing than ever. The, the problem is similar in the sense that, forget who said that everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but not to their own facts. But sometimes the facts are not always facts. So private sales and even public sales sometimes are not really true. And we had that problem back in the day. We tried to resolve it by giving more emphasis and weight to those uh, dealers whom we knew to have strong integrity. And so it was more personal in that sense that they knew that if they tried to pull a fast one on us, number one, we might figure it out anyway because we were so tuned into what reasonable prices were. So I think a very high degree of shooting straight with this, and that really helped us. Now you fast forward to today. And you hear of sales, and that sounds, wow, that sounds really high. It may not be a real sale, whether it's public or private. And the private is more suspicious. But like you said, Rich, back in the day, private sales were all we had. Some of them we witnessed. And even witnessed private sales can be faked, can, can be a sham sale. But I think our, our greatest strength was knowing uh, the regional correspondents, uh, the show dealers, uh, the card shops we were visiting, we were checking in with them. There, there was a reasonableness test of of just seeing how they conducted their business. I'm thinking about just how robust our regional correspondence program really was. How many of the people we recruited in those days are either still in the hobby, or if they're not still selling and buying or buying and selling, that they're really up in the hobby. They're like hobby insiders to some extent. Al Gerso was a regional correspondent. He's now head of the NSCC dealer board. Joe Drellick was a regional correspondent. He's part of the National Managing Partner Group. And to be honest, so was John Brogy, a regional correspondent in the show dealer. So we had a link into the previous group as well. But it was amazing how many dealers we had that we ferreted out that really were straight shooters. And thinking about it, that's pretty amazing. We did a really good job getting the right people. It's not just that. I think they they were at their best because, and I've never really thought of it this way, but we had so many of them. They each knew that we had a bunch of them, that they weren't like the primary regional correspondent. And so if they were out of step with the others, it would stand out. And so there was some strength in having uh, a large group of regional correspondents from around the country 
that we could rely on, but each one of them knew they were not indispensable. Uh, again, the compensation was not great. There were probably some perks there, but not huge compensation. They certainly didn't know the prices ahead of time. They didn't know what it was going to be in the magazine, but they had influence, they had input. But I think that's part of it, Rich. If we had a very small group of elite uh, price fixers, <laughs> that's the wrong way to say it, but that's what they could wind up being. And so our guys, including you and me, we were editing and consolidating and synthesizing the data, trying to make sense out of prices that were coming in from different directions. And regional was important back in those days because you could get regional differences that we would do our best to understand, be able to put out a national, if not international, price guide. I think in, in the DFW area, we still have a slight region. We saw it get exacerbated with the Rangers winning the World Series, but we've actually picked up a regional premium again for the Texas Rangers this year, old and new. It's good to see in some ways that the Rangers have become more popular for obvious reasons. That's true and deserved. Still, I think what's happened over the years, the regional premium that used to be across the board has more and more tended to semi-stars, local stars. You're going to pay a local premium. You're not going to pay Mm -hmm. that much more for the Corey Seager here, but these younger, that second level of semi-star, of not a national star, Maybe even an all-star, Leody Tavares, Travis Jankowski. <laughs> I don't think making a big run on those. But I think no, but Josh Jung and Evan Carter have had nice runs this year. But they're young enough, they can have people speculate him on their rookie cards, regardless of what. Leody's not that old either. Not that he, old, but he, yeah, okay. He's just been around for a while. And you're right about the regional thing. I remember years and years ago when our teammate, Theo Chen, used to travel around the country and go to shows, and he'd be very meticulous about following the rules about which sports he could trade for and anytime he went anywhere. When he was going to Milwaukee, and I said, you need to take your Jim Gantner rookies with you. And this is near the end of his career, but he was like, he'd stayed with the Brewers forever. He, Malter, Yount, they'd all been there more than a decade. And he got a couple... Gantner rookies and five or six brought them up with him. And he goes, they didn't last past the first table he was at. These people were thinking this card is gold. And it probably was in those days to them because, as you said, we didn't have quite the national distribution of cards where you could sit at your computer. In those days, you really couldn't sit at a computer and and order a card either. How you get cards in is totally different too. Did, Did we ever fire a regional correspondent? I think we may have stopped sending to them. And we may have delisted them. I don't think we've ever formally fired any regional correspondent. I really think there's a lot of people that love to do things for the good of the hobby. We were running a business. We had payroll to make. And there was some level of compensation, but it certainly wasn't anything that they were going to, although they put it as a feather in their cap in some cases. It was great publicity for them. Hey, I've sent this into Beckett this week and I did a good job. And with the books on the annual guides and then the almanac, Dan Hayden, our football manager, had built up a bunch of amazing relationships. You had several of them too in football. And we had an amazing group of baseball people and basketball. We, all the key people we had and hockey, we had all the good people too. We had for the annual guides, one of the most amazing, and, and they were very happy being compensated by hey, get me the ad in the book that lasts all year long. But I'm just thinking they didn't get that much compensation. The book people, they, they got the ad in the book. Either. They got a free book too. But again, that's not- They got a free book, yes. But, but my point was, 
that whether it was the regional correspondents in the magazines or the contributors in the books, I don't remember getting books or magazines back a week late. They understood we had a deadline and they either needed to provide it in timely manner or not. And so we weren't getting a bunch of almanacs back the week after we went to the publisher. They understood if we said we needed their work turned in by a month before whatever, some deadline, they understood that to be reasonable because we turned it pretty quick. What was pretty amazing is some of the years we were out of almanacs to send them. Yeah. Actually, a couple of years that had come up with almanacs from our fellow staff members to say, okay, if you're really not using the book, we need this to send this to the regional correspondent. So sometimes we rated our own staff for books. Plus the postage now would be more than what the book would cost, I think, for some of these. The book, it's now a two-volume book. And I think that's a great move that it's a two-volume book. Any other differences between then and now? Also, it's a more complicated world now. When Christina talked about doing her rainbow of her favorite player at, at that dinner we had, there were like 42 versions of it. We didn't have 42 versions of any cards in those days with different print runs or exotic names or anything like that. If you had a variation, if you had a parallel of cards, you might have three or four. And it was easy to ferret it out. You might have several parallels, and they each had different multipliers that were rationally determined. It wasn't twice as difficult, than it's twice as much money. But there, there, you would see some patterns. Uh, but when you got 45, and uh, what we have found is that the patterns and the multipliers are not just affected by the, the serial numbering, but also the coloring. If you've got a more popular color, or a traditional color, or a color-matched uh, team color, uh, those are some of the exceptions that make it not just a formulaic. If this is one of 100, then that sells for more than something that's one out of 150. Maybe I mean, silver prisms are remarkably common, so to speak, but they're also so popular that they are actually more expensive than a lot of less available parallel prism cards. I think that'll change because I think as we get more and more knowledge of how easy they are comparatively, you know, that the, the demand is higher, Rich, but the demand is higher because the supply is not correctly perceived. In fact, the, the supply is so great that they're so actively traded that people take comfort in the fact that I know what this sells for because it sells so frequently. Especially became true with the Luca Rookie Silver Prism. Oh, by the way, did you see that Ryan uh, Stasinski at the Gem Rate? Yes, so, I read the latest email on that. He's going to do a uh, a universal popper board, I think. Oh, that would be awesome. That would be something the hobby needs. I, I think it's very positive because I think when you're looking at some of these things and it's pop one, but it's not necessarily pop one from all the graders, but then you've got the challenge of some of the graders might be perceived as being more lenient than other companies. I, I think we should have that. It's a good starting point. It's more information and it's up for the, I think we're experts. So we're not just taking the raw information and taking it as that's the way it is. We're saying, okay, and speaking but, but, of Ryan, and I realize you may have some proprietary information you can't share that I don't know about, but it, as a Beckett alum, it always annoys me when I see how few cards they are grading compared to the other companies, at least on the gem rate report. Which one of the guys at BGS that's a higher up guy is vehemently disputing that as if we have a firewall or he has some difficulty in getting all of the data out of our uh, pop reports. And so I don't know what it is. I, if I were the boss, I would resolve it because if Ryan's having a problem accessing some of our data, 
And like you said, you know, you know, go to the card money, shows, you get the data. That's money well spent, in my opinion. You go to the card shows, it sure doesn't seem BGS is in it. For BGS is doing great at the card shows. I think the card show market is different. And one of the reasons BGS, I think, is really doing well at the card shows, especially in DFW, obviously it's local. But if you want to submit cards to BGS at the show, it's a very easy process. But they're also local, and you can pick up your cards in person if you're in the Dallas area. That's why these cards show up. Because especially in DFW, you drive to the office, you drop them off, you set up your appointment, and then you pick them up. 